Hello and welcome back to the Beyond Borders podcast. My name is Mark Muller-Stewart and this week I want to share with you a session we recorded at this year's Beyond Borders Festival featuring Monica McWilliams, the veteran Northern Irish women's peace campaigner, in conversation with Nicola Sturgeon, former First Minister of Scotland, about her mesmerising new memoir, Stand Up and Speak Out. Both the book and Nicola take us through Monica's remarkable journey from her poverty-stricken but touching upbringing during the Troubles to becoming the founder of the Women's Peace Coalition and Alliance during the Northern Ireland Peace Talks, onto her work as a politician and now as an international conflict resolver, where she, amongst many other projects, gives her support to the Beyond Borders 1325 Women in Conflict Fellowship Programme, supported by the Scottish Government, the United Nations and Nicola Sturgeon. It is, on any view, a deeply evocative, compelling, but also funny and uplifting interview about a woman who not only helped to bring peace to her native land, but also transformed the nature of peacemaking and the role of women in it across the world by making it both more inclusive and sustainable. The interview conducted by another iconic woman, Nicola Sturgeon, who, notwithstanding her retirement as First Minister, remains at the top of her game and may just have found yet another role in her expanding post-FM repertoire. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm delighted to be here. It's always wonderful to be at this Beyond Borders Festival, a very, very special festival in, in my view, somewhere for the exchange of ideas in a very safe space in absolutely beautiful surroundings. Um, can I add my welcome to the 1325 Fellows? Uh, one of the things I'm proudest of from my years as First Minister is the support we gave to establish this fellowship. It's very important, it's very special. I've just had the opportunity to speak with the Fellows who are here. If you get the chance, uh, do that. An incredible uh, bunch of women from all parts of the world bringing lots of insight and experience here to Scotland. And I am really thrilled to be here with Monica. I said to her uh, when we had the chance to speak just a few moments ago, I've, I've spent the week reading her incredible book, so I feel as if I know you really well. I probably right now know more about you than you do, because I've just read it. Um, <laughs> but we were I was observing, we were both observing, Monica is somebody I have admired hugely from afar for a long time and yet we've never, we've never met. met. So I'm really thrilled to be here. This is an incredible uh, life story, incredible book chronicling a really extraordinary life. I wanted to start in, in the first chapter when you're talking about yourself as a child. You say that you were the child in the family that always caused the rows. And on one occasion, your mum took your sisters on holiday and left you at home because you would have started a row. How does a child who always causes the rows, something I can identify with, um, how does she go on to become such an incredible peacemaker and conciliator? Mm, uh, if you were talking to some of the people around that table, they'd still say that she caused a few <laughs> rows there too. Um, I don't think it ever left me. Um, but yeah... I learned a lot as a child where I had to start the book with where do your values come from, where did you get the passion and I was asked here yesterday at the meeting we were doing with Mark, um, where did you cut your teeth and 
It was actually on an international issue of Biafra. If you maybe many of you don't remember, but that shows you how old I am. Um, and so it was on the international issue rather than on the local issue. Mm. But I guess from a very early stage, and that's why I opened the book. How did you relate to your brothers and sisters? Um, and I was very aware of the different treatment of the brothers. I don't know if any of you ever got this, but our brothers were allowed to get the salt, right? And I used to say, get it yourself, you useless so-and-sos. <laughs> and that was the start of it. And of course, I, we had this beautiful mother who would say, now keep the peace, keep the peace. Um, and we had a father who said, stand up for yourself and don't let anybody walk over you. So I had to balance those two. So how do you keep a nice, peaceful environment? Mm but not let anybody walk over you. Yeah. And I suppose as a young girl, that was a very good lesson to hear. With all the other values, which was to, you know, have an option for the poor, because yeah. I was growing up as a Catholic and we were talking about theology and liberation theology that was going on. Um, and I was very aware that those were some of the values that I was being passed on and then later finding out that there were others, as we now see in the United States, using Catholicism yeah. as a kind of stick. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't, that was not how I was brought up. Yeah. So I, that's where I started, and it was a hard enough chapter, and we just talked there about finding, because Nicola's going to write her memoir, now you're the first to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes out, buy it, because I can't <laughs> wait to read it. Um, because. I, I, there are things that you have to be careful about what you put in the book. Um, and so, you know, I discovered that my own parents didn't tell me a lot. Mm. And we, you've just heard the piece about um, the Polish writer and the, the Holocaust and the silence. And I often think that's happened to us too. In that I discovered that my own parents had an incredible history. Um, but they didn't talk very much about it because there's always that fear that you're maybe passing on some bitterness or some anger and you've got to protect your kids from yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So when I sat down to write the memoir, um, that's um, what I discovered was that um, my, my father's family and my mother's family had been involved after the partition of Ireland, um, right through the revolution 1916, the uprising, which was predominantly in Dublin, but here in, here, I'm in Scotland, in, in Northern Ireland, Ireland was partitioned and they were against it. Um, and the, one of them was a commander of the IRA. And it was Michael Collins, the famous Michael Collins, who came and rescued them and took them across the border because he knew they would all be killed. Mm. But we, we were never told any of that. And on my mother's side, those combatants, as they were known, who were members of the old IRA, went on to be the first leader of the general of the Irish army. So he went from an illegal army to into a legitimate army of the yeah. new republic, which was something you would have thought my generation would have been told and yeah. passed on. So that I could put some of it in the book, but I was very aware when I went to the peace talks that a memo was circulating, watch her, she's a cousin of Charlie Hockey's. Which I didn't know until I read it in the yeah, yeah. book. There's lots of fascinating family history. In yeah, mm -hmm. because it, I should explain, I'm a first cousin. And in Ireland, he's one of those figures. You never have this in Scotland. You either love him or hate him. <laughs> well, we definitely have that in Scotland. <laughs> um, and so when I, that's why at the peace talks that was an issue, because it came out that I was a cousin of his and I needed, they needed to watch me. 
And yet, I have 96 first cousins, so they needed to watch the other 95. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we, we don't find out who all of them are in the book. Um, it's, it's interesting, your, the, the way I think you, you very rightly described that there isn't a conflict between being argumentative and somebody who stands up for yourself and a, a peacemaker. Because listening to you talk about your family history, strong Republican links on both sides of your family, you grew up in a, a Catholic community, it would have been very easy, it strikes me, reading the book, for you to become part of one side of a very polarised uh, divide. Instead, your motivation always seemed to be uh, to improve conditions, to you know, promote human rights, civic rights, uh, the rights of women. How did, how did that happen? How, how did you avoid being drawn in to the one side of the very polarised divide instead become somebody who, over a career, helped to bring people together? I, I would say education, and it was really important, but as you saw in the book, it was a totally segregated education. I never met a Protestant until I was 18. And I couldn't wait to meet a Protestant fellow to find out if he was any different <laughs> than the Catholic fellows. And I like the fact you conclude they're not. They're not. No. <laughs> They weren't one bit different. They were just—they were talking about cars and football and just as boring at times. Um, and that was a disappointment. But to think you lived all that life until you entered the door of a university and then discovered these people who should have been—you should have been grown up with. But I was very aware early on of the poverty in the village. We had a town, and a part of our wee village was called Kabul. Kabul. And the child asked, "What the hell is this called Kabul for?" And of course it was, oh, that's that terrible place in Afghanistan, so that's why we've named it Kabul. And it was because they were so poor. Yeah. And Nick's village had Tin Town, which was all these corrugated sink roofs because they couldn't afford to put tiles. So I was very aware of that kind of poverty. Um, and as you know, we were, the television came about in 65, we were hearing about what was happening in Africa. My mother was very conscious that we would uh, have some solidarity not just with what was going on in our own segregated community, but how to resolve conflict in other parts of the world. So, but you probably read the bit about the potato field. It was really in the potato field I discovered discrimination. Age 10, the two brothers were getting paid twice as much as me and my sister, who's over there. I was absolutely disgusted, because we were working twice as hard, our wee cartons of spuds were just as heavy, and they were coming home with twice as much money and rubbing our noses in it. So I suggested they go and strike and stay at home the following week so the farmer could see we were good workers. But they didn't take me up on that. Um, but the farmer then caught on because he discovered all the boys were cheating by putting stones into their buckets of, of potatoes. So I said, not only do you know now that girls are more honest, we're not as corrupt and we're harder workers. And it was age 10, so I thought, <laughs> that's all right. Still took some years after that to get equal pay. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, the other thing, reading the book, uh, saying earlier on, you know, when I was growing up, Northern Ireland was on the television and the news all the time, but always reported through the prism of IRA bombs here, not through the prism of what was actually the sort of root and the cause of, of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Reading, your, so I think we often, and still are quite ignorant about some of the complexities of the situation in Northern Ireland. But reading your book, it also is very striking of uh, how matter of fact sometimes you describe bombs going off everywhere yeah. and the troubles took hold. What's it like does, you know, to, to live through that? Does it 
just become so normalised. Exactly. Well, one story that um, struck me was your mum, when you went to study in Detroit, your mum was worried because it was a very dangerous city. Um, and I had to tell her our house yeah. had been bombed three times. Yeah. And she was absolutely so fearful that I was going to this terrible, terrible place across the Atlantic called Detroit. And I said, Mommy, do you not know how many times we've lost the roof of the house? And she said, sure, that's nothing. But does that just become so... Uh, and, and does that then become part of the barrier to result because it just becomes a normal way of life, you're did. living with it, this? It became so. an abnormal way of life, but we didn't know any other way yeah. of life. Um, and that's why I love working with the women from Beyond Borders. Um, and, and when I first met the Syrian women, um, when the Syrian conflict broke out 12 years ago, I said, I hope you do not live through 30 years. And they said, no, ours will be over in about a year. And look at it now. So what should have been extraordinary became very ordinary. And I tell a, a story in the book, and, um, and I now see it being repeated um, by psychiatrists in terms of how people normalize what, you know, the trauma. My aunt came to stay with us and she had my bedroom and a thousand pound bomb went off in the town that night. And when I was a little girl, I used to be sent, because I was not the per most perfect child, over the summer holidays and the two sisters always got to go to the beach and I got to go to my aunt's farm because there would be less rows if I was taken. <laughs> so off I would go to her farm and on rare occasions there would be thunder. And I, it was a kind of thing in Ireland, and Irish, at least in our family, that there was a fear of thunder. And she would spread holy water, and she would hope the thunder would go. And I could see this fear. But anyway, the night the thousand pound went, bomb went off, I ran into the bedroom, and she was saying her prayers. I said, it's OK, Aunt Mary, it's all over. And she said, what was it? I said, uh, it was a bomb. She said, oh, thanks be to God, I thought it was thunder. <laughs> And that tells you, that just tells you everything. And that, you know, that her fear was of something else because we were hearing this all the time. But the sad part of the book was, and I didn't realize this till I wrote it, the memoir, was how accustomed I had become to having friends killed yeah. and going to funerals um, and seeing the tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it was day after day, week after week, um, and then thinking that if I go to Belfast and I said any young person at 18 going to university, it's everything they dream of. And it was the best days and the worst days. Mm. And then my boyfriend was murdered in 1974 when I was a second year student. And the, um, we were doing our exams. I couldn't go to the funeral. In those days, there was no such thing as reset if you didn't show up. And the invigilator walked down the hall and he said, uh, where is this guy? Because we were seated alphabetically for exams. I said, he was murdered two days ago in his funerals this morning. He said, that's fine, get on with your exam. Um, and, you know, I, I did. Um, and there's not hardly a, a year, a day that goes past that I don't remember him. Mm -hmm. um, but that was kind of no, no such thing as counselling. No notion of, of this could be traumatising for the students. The university in those days, of course, said, you know, if you come in around, we will provide a sanctuary and you won't have to get to know anything that's going on outside these walls. It was the wrong way mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and there were lively debates and discussions. So the answer to your question was I kind of all the time wanted to broaden mm -hmm. um, my own mind um, because I knew I had grown up. None of us grew up any other way except was socialised into certain prejudice. Um, and I, had, I carried those, mm. but I wanted to reach out to see, can I learn mm -hmm. from others? And 
At the peace talks, I said there were some very clever people at the table, but not very wise people, the same person. Because he'd tell you all about his erudition and how knowledgeable, but he was not wise about what we needed to do. Mm. So education was important, but the relationships, the human relationships with other people who, who did not agree with you politically, yeah. who you may not have always liked personally, but who you were going to have to learn from. And so that's why I wrote that whole piece about one of the loyalist leaders and said we became like a brother mm -hmm. and sister mm -hmm. during the peace talks. And I was very aware that there were people at the table who had been in the groups who had murdered my boyfriend and I opened that chapter by saying, I opened up my eyes the first day at the peace talks table and looked around and there wasn't a leader at the table who had either, he had either been shot yeah or he had known a personal member of his family who was killed. Or, and I thought, we're all around this table. And if we don't make peace in the next few years that we're here, it was two years, and we let this, all we're ever going to do is attend more funerals. Mm. Um, and that was a, a big learning for yeah. me to sit beside this guy who was the leader of an armed group who did transition during those peace talks challenged his own side which is a great sign of leadership um, and became a personal friend yeah. and so that's Nicola how you know not just through the education of what I was learning and and that's really important but it was the human human relationships yeah. but the courage it takes to do that you talk in the book about one of your colleagues you know sitting down with Sinn Féin for the first time who yeah. she held responsible for you know the murder of her own yeah. friends and family but the courage it takes to to sit around that table and get over the hatred and the the bitterness that you yeah. feel inside is is incredible and for the first year and I'm sure the women from mm. all the countries that you've heard about would identify with this I mean for the first year of the peace talks all we did was blame each other yeah. and mm. vent and maybe that was needed because you know you need to vent and get it out but I used to sit with my hand in my head thinking, when will we move on to the substance? Mm -hmm. When will we get down and really have to agree on what you need and what we need? Yeah. And everybody will have something out of this agreement. Mm -hmm. But it really was, a, and in that book, you, as you said, you were shocked at the things that were being said. Well, well, I mean, this was 1998. It's not yesterday, but it's not equally in the dark recesses of, of history. And some of the, the sexist, uh, misogynistic comments that were being made openly to you. I was asking myself, you know, men probably still thought and felt them here back in 1998, but would they have been said openly? And I don't think they would have been. Yeah. Um, it, and, and that brings me, I suppose, to, you know, the heart of the 1325 Fellowship, the, the role in the voice of women in peace building. Because yeah. when you talked earlier a moment ago about uh, people being clever but not wise, you constantly said he. Um, referring to men, um, yeah. how important, in, in your book, when you talk about women, it struck me, in Northern Ireland, there was almost a, I was going to say triple whammy, but maybe quadruple whammy, you know, the, the injustices and inequality that women everywhere face, the addition of the, the sort of religiously held beliefs about women's place, yeah. then the, the, the disproportionate impact of conflict, the number of single parents because men had been killed or yeah. were in prison, and then a comment you make at, on a couple of occasions, the, the fight for women's equality constantly had to take a back seat to the fight for you know, religious equality and against the troubles. It must have taken so much vision and courage and determination to even get women's voices around the table of the peace talks. It did, it did. Yeah, it, did you? It, well, 
The women had been working together for 25 years, many of us, and that's how we also had crossed each other's communities because, you know, violence against women and girls doesn't stop at the, any border, um, nor did it stop in whether you were a Protestant or Catholic, so it was the common feature. So we had started working to build shelters and refuges and to campaign for change in legislation. And we were very much up against the patriarchs. I mean, Paisley at one stage in the parliament said, well, I, I'll let these, um, this domestic violence legislation come in, uh, but it's only going to be for married people because the ones who are living in sin deserve everything they get. And that was on the floor of the parliament. So you can imagine how difficult it was to... And so we were watching how good Scotland was in terms of advocating for this. And we were, that's the kind of politics, but it was politics that we were content with. The big decision was, do you take the jump from that informal small p politics into big politics, which was when it was declared there would be peace talks. Mm. And we looked around and we said, gee, we've been together, we've built the networks, we have lots of influence with each other, we should form a coalition. But first we wrote to all the parties asking them, um, um, are you going to put some women delegates at this table? This was before Women, Peace and Security's resolution in 2000. Um, they didn't bother writing back. Mm. Actually, I'd tell a lie. The Communist Party wrote back, but I didn't think they were going to make it to the peace talks. <laughs> so we, we said, right, well, we'll just organise ourselves. And we had a big meeting like in, in a room like this with thousands of women coming. And it, there wasn't, a, you know, we were very unsure of whether this was the right decision. And then this wee voice came up from the back. It's time to wave goodbye to dinosaurs. <laughs> and that became our slogan. Wave goodbye to dinosaurs. Um, there's a film now called Wave Goodbye to yeah. Dinosaurs. And in it, there's a funny moment where we get slated for having called them dinosaurs. And we and me and others said, is your name on that poster? Why are you self-identifying as a dinosaur? <laughs> <laughs> And so that became a big novelty. And we became quite, you know, known to be quite radical. Some called us subversives. But mostly we were seen as outsiders hmm. because we had got elected six yeah. weeks later. We had six weeks to get organized, to raise the money, to get the, the posters. And in the chapter, I talk about it being a kitchen table campaign. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had children, I had two small children, and so did many of the others. But we were crossing the country, going to the villages, the towns, and saying, if you don't take this moment, this wonderful window of opportunity has opened. Let's not cry crocodile tears if it passes us and it's an all-male delegate mm. that sits at the top. But the dogs. importance of that, of having women's voices around that table, is hard to overstate just how crucial that was to the whole process. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and without you, it wouldn't have happened. Without uh, the Women's Coalition, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. have happened. Yeah, and, and I remember thinking, look, they're going to put more women at the table. The first day I walked in, we were the only two women yeah. at the table because each party was entitled to two delegates mm. or three. And the first comment was said to me, well, the only women I think should be at the table are the ones who are going to polish it. These were the kind of comments that I, I couldn't imagine being openly made here at the time. Yeah, plenty of people would have thought them, but at that stage, I don't think they would have been verbalised. Yeah. And there, but that makes you, mm -hmm. you know, that puts passion in you. Yeah. That's your call to action. And, and I remember this man saying, by the time this is over, we'll, you'll stand by the men of Ulster. I can't sing, but I did sing, and I started singing Stand By Your Man. <laughs> and Senator Mitchell, who, the, you know, the chair of the talks, was like, 
he started laughing, but at the same time he thought, now how do I get this back to where I wanted to be? <laughs> um, but it was, it was quite something, and I told the story yesterday. Um, we called ourselves again because we were probably not thinking through what would be on the ballot sheet. We called ourselves the Women's Coalition, well that stands for WC. <laughs> um, so at the very first day, one of the big leaders of the other party said, I will teach that WC a lesson by the time this is over. And I said straight back to him, and my sister always taught me, good sister that sits there, taught me, don't be pointing, she said, that looks like you're shooting him. <laughs> so I had to learn to behave nicely. Um, and so I said, um, and by the time this is over, we will have flushed away your certainties. <laughs> <laughs> So I think humour does break tension. Yeah, definitely. And, and they began to see us then, because we were so well prepared. Every night we went to my kitchen table, because, as I said, we had kids and we prepared and prepared. And that's what women do. Yeah. When you're nervous, when you lack confidence, when your self-esteem isn't as high. You feel and you have to prove yourself, so you, over and you over. just work hard. And then you look and uh, listen to this bunch of waffle that's coming from yeah. the other side. <laughs> And you're thinking, I just sat for four hours last night preparing for this. But it's the old saying, isn't it? Women tend to have to be twice as good to yeah, be considered yeah. just half as worthy. And, so, and, yeah, yeah. and feel that you have a right to sit yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you, you describe in the book very movingly, so I'm not going to try and summarise it, the, the sort of emotion around the Good Friday Agreement getting to that point mm. of conclusion in the peace talks. Rather than me try to describe it, you describe it for us. Well, for two years we'd been at the table, so we were banking us. Nothing was agreed until everything was agreed. Um, but we were in these different committees on policing, on prisoner releases, on big issues of how we would be governed in the future, sharing power. But we also, and as women, were very focused on issues of safeguards and equal opportunity and, and the issue of human rights. And we wanted those to be put in. Um, we wanted, we looked at Scotland and saw that you were having this civic forum discussion. And we thought, that's a really brilliant idea. If there's going to be an agreement and there's going to be a legislative body, it'd be nice to have an advisory body of civic representatives, people who are accustomed to making peace, but don't always get to be the politicians. And so we managed to get that in. Victims were in our group. Many of the women had lost their husbands, brothers, um, and sisters. And they said, there's nothing in this agreement about victims. Um, and it was the last coming down to the last week and we had prepared a whole set of proposals around victims and I said if we go out to the people to ask them to vote say yes to this agreement and there isn't a single word in it about victims it'll be called a terrorist charter it'll be called all kinds of things not only for that reason but because the victims in any conflict resolution need to be recognized and have reparations I regret now Nicola going back that I wasn't stronger but who gets to peace talks? Mm. It's the guys who are going to share power, or it's the armed groups. It's not often the people representing victims. And had we felt a, more, a stronger sense, now all these years later, of course, you hear, and especially in Northern Ireland, about how this is such a difficult issue to deal with the legacy. But I found the notes when I was writing the book, and we'd actually proposed um, a peace and justice commission. Mm but it fell off the table. Mm -hmm. And now we're f trying, struggling with this shockingly bad legislation that Westminster are putting mm -hmm. through. But the last week was a week of tension. Mm -hmm. It was up, it was down. It was, you know, there was a famous leader of the Ulster Union who was saying, I'm not touching it with a 40-foot barge pole. 
I immediately shot out to the media and held up the draft, the only draft that we had finally got in our hands and said, nobody is going back to war over this document because the media were very powerful. And that was the people's expectation was it's all over. Mm. And I wanted to keep the expectation of the country up because at the end of the day, it's the people's agreement. And so the people rose up and they came out on the streets and they demanded that we go the extra mile. And so that was the Monday. They, Taoiseach's mother died. He was going up and down to the funeral, to the wake. Incredible leadership. And I was listening to the previous session there in terms of Tony Blair, and there was incredible leadership. But I just wish he had learned a whole lot more about Northern Ireland before he made that decision about Iraq mm. in terms of it's not armies that are going to resolve conflict. Mm. It isn't the militarism that's going to resolve conflict. It is, um, it is the politics. And so that week we finally came out towards the Friday night and it was Good Friday. And I remember thinking, I hope every day will be a Good Friday. Mm. Um, and we signed it and as a mother, I went home to my children and I tell the story in the book. The little one was skating up and down the street and I, um, I said, look, we made peace today. And he said, ah, ma'am, you're supposed to be doing that every day. <laughs> and he skated on. And I went and I said to the other fellow, he was 10 or 11, he was watching the TV, he couldn't believe it. And he said to me, um, I see there's an amazing a peace agreement. Everyone's cheering, it's fantastic. He said, does that mean that I can go and come back from school safely? Will all the riots stop? Will all the killings stop? And I said, no, son, it doesn't, thinking actually they could go up. Mm -hmm. Remember the Oma bomb yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. It's mm -hmm. the 25th anniversary, actually, this month. Um, I said, no, it doesn't. And he asked me a couple more questions about, will all the uh, disturbances over the parades, because the country was burning down over the, what you know about in Scotland, the Orange Order and the parades and the protest. I mm -hmm. said, no, it doesn't. He said, what did you sign today? <laughs> And that's what I went to bed thinking, what did I sign today? It's the first And step. 25 years later, I'm working as hard on yeah. those issues as I did the day I signed well, it. One thing I thought was really interesting in the book, um, and it, you, you were then, of course, after the referendum and the establishment of the Assembly, you were elected to the first Assembly. And you tell a story in the book about um, signing in and everybody had to oh, yeah. declare nationalist, unionist, or other, yeah. because the Women's Coalition was cross-community, yeah. you wanted all to designate as unionist, nationalist and, and other. other, but you weren't allowed to. And it just struck me, and thinking about the, you know, the, the fact that the, the Assembly, the Executive, is not operational just now, many of the, the, the structures that were built into the Good Friday Agreement, for understandable reason, to get beyond that, actually in some ways perpetuated that. The divides yeah. because of the, ba the the compromises needed for power sharing, yeah. and that seemed to me to be a very basic but you know, quite yeah. concrete example yeah. of that. And now we can't get an, we the Northern Ireland can't get an executive up and running because of yeah. some of these elements yeah. of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, and what you need to understand was only nationalists and unions votes counted. Yeah, because we had this beautiful concept that we took from South Africa because we had the absolute privilege and some of the people who brought us there are here um, to go and spend three days with Mandela and I write about that in the book and what we learned from them and how we came home and we had fundamentally changed our thinking after listening to what they had told us um, and so the sufficiency of consensus had to be a sufficiency of Protestants and Catholics or a sufficiency of nationalist unions those who wanted the union those who wanted um, a unification with Ireland and that's fair enough, because you need to get, you know, to understand the decisions need to be fair on both yeah. sides. 
But then there is a whole new group of people called others. And then it wasn't so much ethnic minorities. It was those who no longer wanted to identify with that binary, mm -hmm. part of the union, part of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so we said they need to be included. Our votes didn't count. And hence the reason, once again, it created a row. And once again, they said, those bloody women, what are they doing now? This is a historical day. And they want to be counted nationalist unionists or others. Um, and it was a problem. The whole assembly had to stop. Mm -hmm. They had to take legal advice. Are they allowed to do this? The legal advice was no. So we then had to go in and sign in as inclusive others. It still meant our vote didn't count. Yeah. But I said, the day will come when that vote will have to count mm -hmm. because there's a rising number of young people and it's great to hear about the young people here who are now writing in the media and writing about their futures and they say we, we don't want to be part of this binary we want to be well they are also saying we want to be part of Europe which is also wider than this little tiny part and the next time we had to sign in was to make the first minister um, uh, the first minister he didn't have enough votes so we said, okay, we'll redesignate the rules allowed it. And one of us said, okay, this is gonna, one of us is gonna have to be a nationalist, one of us is gonna have to be a unionist. And my good friend, Jane, who is so pro-Europe, she signed in as a European unionist. Yeah. <laughs> and it actually counted. <laughs> and the first minister was voted yeah. in. That was Trimble. That was Trimble. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, for, so what that message tells you is, a small, small, small group can make a difference. Yeah. And, and I was really pleased that day to think that we held out, uh, not that he thanked us. But it was so important. Uh, yeah. But I just thought it was interesting, and I suppose it's sometimes the, the complex, you know, what, what is sometimes required to, to forge peace in an instant, you know, the, the compromises, the, the structures, can then, years later, actually become Correct. what causes the paralysis. So Correct. Are the opposite of what is needed to sustain peace over the longer term, which Correct. I thought was just a, a fascinating And I, I, I looked back yesterday at this meeting we had here, which was the um, from the, the Volker Bernadotte um, Institute from Sweden had gathered us together to look at the application of Islamic principles to peacemaking. And it was a really interesting day, and I was thinking, timing is everything too, the context is everything. We were talking about how language was important. And what was not possible 25 years ago is now possible. But in the clause in the agreement, I couldn't believe that, that either they were too tired or they were fed up with us. We actually got the right of women to full and equal political participation. It was the first time in a peace agreement mm. that um, we had managed to get that in. But on the, further down, we actually had got a safeguard in rights of non-discrimination on disability, class, gender, race um, and sexual orientation. Mm. And that was 1998, 25 years ago. Um, and it's hard to believe, given all the discussions. Um, the other lesson I learned about that was, it was an aspiration, and I write about it in the book, mm. how you need to make some of those things an obligation. Yeah. So everything changes. Of 25 years later, those have now become obligations. Mm -hmm. But at that time, we, would have, we said, okay, we just need to get this in, yeah. and one day we might get it as a guarantee. But it's also broadening the agenda. It was bringing those issues in on top of the old religion issue. Yeah, which, you, as a member of the Assembly, struck me how much you campaigned on health issues and, you know, lots of, of incredible work. And then there's all the work in, in terms of human rights you did as Commissioner for Human Rights, the, yeah. the work that, OK, didn't uh, come to fruition, but around a Bill of Rights. So broadening from that very binary to looking at what binds people together yeah. as human beings. And, and, the, and you know, even with Brexit now, 
And I said, you, you know, with a Scottish accent, it turned out, if you said it quickly enough, it sounded like a bill of rights instead of a bill of rights. Um, and quite a lot of people saw it as a bill of rights. Um, but with Brexit now, I think there's more of an acceptance yeah. that we actually do need these fundamental rights because you can go backwards. Yeah. So and the book was about how do you sustain what you've got and how do you maintain it and how do you, how do you build it. Um, so it was really for the ones coming behind me. Yeah. And I still have to get my two sons to read the book. Well, yeah. they should, because it's very, you should all read the book. But it, it just, I, I think we're, we're going to come to the audience in just a few minutes for some questions. There's a couple of final questions I, I want to pose to you. But what I took from the book and why I think it is such an important book is that what has to be done in the moment to, to make peace is mm. not what is needed then to, to build and sustain peace over the longer yeah. term. Two, two final questions. One, you know, when you read the book, it, it really does just bring home the depth of polarisation in Northern Ireland. Um, and albeit in Northern Ireland, that's rooted very much in sectarianism, religious divide. What a few years ago might have been not unique to Northern Ireland, but particular, that polarisation is endemic now across the world. Every issue, mm. people rush to the polls, to the, and it's very toxic. We've got you know, some of that here in, in Scotland and debate that I've been very part of, very much part of over my career. Wh what lessons from Northern Ireland can we all learn now to try to move away from that very, you know, toxified, polarised debate where if you disagree with somebody on one, is one issue, you can't possibly countenance agreeing with them on anything? Mm. Well, it's from the title of the book, Stand Up and Speak Out. But truly get the facts out, because mm. the earlier session also showed you how difficult it is to get facts, to stop the myths, mm. to stop the conspiracies. Um, and, and I think the media are paying less attention to serious journalism and paying for good investigative mm. journalism. Um, but I also think we need to pay some due respect to good politicians, mm. like yourself, who have tried... Peter for that, <laughs> Who fight that battle, who do challenge um, and to stop that polarisation. Our language can be very polarising too. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first went to the, the, into the peace talks, everybody was talking about the criminals at the table. And I had to keep asking the, the chair to stop it, that we should be known by the, the name of the party that yeah. we'd come to the table from. And it went on, and terrorists and criminals and, you know, the language. And language is important, and that's what's creating polarisation yeah. uh, and the hate speech. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and some people say to me that we might not have had a peace agreement if we had all this Twitter and social media, mm -hmm. because we had to be confidential. You couldn't mm -hmm. actually tell anybody what mm -hmm. we were agreeing in case it made it more difficult for the other side. I'm not so sure, because mm -hmm. at the end there was great leadership that was you know, shown, mm -hmm. and people did... That's what made me think on the early Monday that we are going to make this because nobody broke those rules. And they could have. Yeah. They could have gone out and destroyed the other side. Mm -hmm. So there has to be an element in which you understand if I do this to you, you could do it very quickly mm -hmm. back to me. Um, and we need to stop that. Um, and, I, and I do, you know, I do think there is some positivity too in that we're now beginning to see, did it take a tragedy for us to see climate change? Mm. When we had the research, we had the... Yeah, we had the and yet, um, and yet even evidence. on that now, there is a pushback. There is a, a challenging of the science. There's a 
you know, a sense that the your action to tackle climate change is going too far. And, and so even on something like that, where the, the evidence, in my view, is incontrovertible, you still see through that you know, social media polarised tendency, the pushback. And, yeah. and in a lot of, you know, whether it's women's rights or rights of minorities, it feels that we're at quite a fragile time. Yes, we are. That things can go backwards. Yeah, absolutely. to remember but that. But you know, we know that from the from mm. the right of women to vote. Yeah. We got the vote and then look what happened. Mm. Women were pushed back. Then yeah. they came forward. We, we elected men. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I was, that was not serious. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you do, and, and the book is really about hold on to what you've got. Don't let anyone take it from you. Sustain it, yeah. keep building it, keep promoting it. Uh, and that's why the chapter ends from the local to the global. Because I learn as much from what I see from the women that are here and from the, what, where I've, I've come back from South Sudan yeah. um, and the other countries. And I get ideas there that I can bring back and apply. So it's really important that that we go back to multilateralism. Mm -hmm. We have become so insular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, make America great again. Yeah. Um, Brexit. Brexit. And, mm -hmm. and you can name, you can see what's mm -hmm. happening in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and I keep on as a researcher, as a professor, I kept on saying, let the facts speak, let the research speak, let the evidence speak. Um, and I still believe that. I believe it strongly as well. One of the problems I think in modern democracies is we've lost that you know, shared foundation of fact, even basic facts are contested yeah. through the, the medium of Twitter and such like. Yeah. Look, my, my last question, because I do want to give the audience some opportunity to ask you questions. Northern Ireland, you've you chronicled this incredible journey through the peace talks to the Good Friday Agreement, to the establishment of the Assembly, to, you know, peace breaking out in Northern Ireland. And yet here we are today, no functioning government in Northern Ireland. Are you optimistic about the future or what do you think is going to happen in the near term? Well first there's no going back to war mm. and that's really important but peace has to be more than just the ending of a violent conflict. Mm. Um, I am optimistic but you know I'm optimistic of the heart, um, am I optimistic of the head? I do see that it will probably now have to be played out till the Westminster election. If there's a Labour government comes in, will it take a di different decision in terms of what's happening in Northern Ireland? There's a potential referendum. I'm on the commission to disband armed groups. They could have gone away, but along came Brexit and all of them suddenly said, oh, we need to stay in place because of this. So everybody gives you a rationale for why they don't move out. Um, and so we need to get the kind of political common sense back in there. I do believe the Assembly will come back, but it's, it's shocking that they are waiting so long. Mm. I mean, in my own day, in the First Assembly, I was elected to the First Assembly. I lost my job four times. Mm. My disappointment is that the young people are watching this and they're saying, is this a career that I want to go into? Mm. I have bills to pay, I have the rent, I have the mortgage, I have this, um, and, and yet it's collapsing. So that cannot be the message. If you want to get a thriving, vibrant, emerging leaders Put up your government, keep it up. It's so easy to pull something down, it's harder to keep it and build it. And so the people are saying that, but it is kind of a disillusionment mm. that's set in, like are these politicians any use? Mm. And I hate to hear that because we do need good political people and we need new blood in politics, mm, as you well know. Absolutely, yeah. And in terms of the island of Ireland? 
That's uh, interesting. A lot of good discussions. People who ran away from having those discussions are now having them. The Irish government have started a huge, huge uh, debate around a shared island. Nobody's talking about a united Ireland, not even Sinn Féin. Um, and those discussions are in parish halls, they're everywhere. Um, and But it's the Secretary of State, I don't know, it'll be the British government's responsibility. Um, mm. And therein lies the future leader of whoever is governing uh, Westminster. But sure as hell, they didn't understand one thing about Irish politics when they put forward a referendum on Brexit. And what we've learned from that is you prepare, prepare, prepare. Yeah. The neglect of Ireland and Northern Ireland and Brexit was utterly shameful. Yeah. Um, and they, and yeah. they should have known the intended consequences. Instead, now look what's happened. Mm. Um, and so that, Nicola, is making people go in the direction of a united Ireland. Brexit, um, the fact we have no assembly, people feeling that it's a, a failed state, and they're saying, oh, I wasn't so fussed about unification, but now I am. Um, and that's not a good way to make a good, peaceful decision. It, that's coming out of bitterness and anger. Yeah. One of the, um, please put your hand up if you want to ask a question. One of the great privileges uh, I had as First Minister was attending British-Irish Council summits. Mm. And it often struck me, and I've said this publicly before, that you know, I think for you know, forever and ever and ever, the component members of the British-Irish Council, they'll always sit around that table, always should sit around that table. But what, in terms of what status and relationships, that's up for grabs and perhaps uh, in future a united ireland and independent scotland the relationships wales perhaps who knows but it's it's how we come together and collaborate and cooperate and to do that on the basis of equality uh, is totally. i think the, that's the everything that's why yeah. you were the leader that you were you mm. understood those principles mm. well, collaboration cooperation um, and that was, you know, they talk about a disunited kingdom. Mm. But when you have everybody coming around that table. And so in Ireland now they're saying, Nicola, that there is more discussion on north-south relationships than there is on east-west relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to reunite them. And people are looking at Scotland more than they've ever done before they're looking at what's happening here. Well, shows we should get our act together then. <laughs> but it strikes me, you know, the, 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 the unity around the sort of British Isles, if I can use that term, might be greater if we move to a, a set of relationships, to go back to something you said a moment ago, that didn't have the Westminster government always holding the whip hand and the right of veto and them being the ones who determined whether Ireland was united or Scotland could be independent. We, we had the opportunity all to decide how we wanted to be governed and then come together to cooperate where we need to. Anyway, that's enough for me. I'm going to go to the audience. Uh, gentlemen here and, uh, well, we'll take the gentleman here and then, yep, I think we've got a question back here. Uh, Monica, you kept coming back to how you looked across at Scotland some years ago and then you're suggesting in the last minute that there's lessons possibly to be learned from Scotland now. How do you see the future in Scotland in terms of, this, this is addressed to the people in Scotland, mainly Scottish audience here I imagine, and also to Nicola to, to effect change in Scotland and to build relationships across differences of opinion, even differences of opinion on the same side. Good question. You go. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping. Um, 
Well, you know, it's, it's really important that what, when I say we're watching what's happening here, it is about that veto. Um, because I was, I suffered from that veto. We should have had a Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland. I was the Chief Commissioner for Human Rights. I scoped out the advice, I gave it to the Secretary of State, I gave it to the Prime Minister and who threw it on a shelf. And it's been gathering dust ever since. It didn't say that in the agreement. So Westminster took a decision to exercise a veto. And they said, oh, we have no Bill of Rights in the rest of the United Kingdom, so you'll probably, you'll not get one for Northern Ireland. That taught me exactly what was happening in Scotland. That, you know, that's not a sensible way to make mm. politics work. Um, and so we're watching, again, what was happening, I meant more in terms of that vote for independence. Mm. Um, and now the kind of pushback that's going on. Um, all of that's affecting, of course it affects us, we watch it very closely here. Having said all of that, we actually think you've got a brilliant parliament. You're, you're doing good social policy, you're making yep. legislation. Um, we're not. And that's every time I stood up, I, that's the point but I was but making. But we're now being challenged when we do in a way that we weren't before. So Westminster is prepared to use our arguable right of veto in a way. And so my answer to that question, two, two things. One, in terms of Scotland's relationship with Westminster, it's very hard to see how that becomes more constructive and until we get back to a principle that we've had throughout my lifetime, whether you're a unionist or a nationalist in Scotland's terms, even Margaret Thatcher accepted it was up to the people of Scotland to decide. To decide. And that has, at the moment, been, been lost. And I think we need to get back to that. In terms of within Scotland, I, you know, I'm a passionate supporter of Scottish independence, in case you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> and so have been part of this polarised debate very much on one side, but have become increasingly uncomfortable in recent years about just how polarised it is. And whenever I say that, what I get is, you've got no right to say that because you've been part of it. We need to, to learn to talk to each other again and accept that we, we should bring out experiences to work out how we come together and disagree in a way that takes the country forward. Um, and these are not easy things to do, but I think we've got a lot to learn from Northern Ireland. And if in the process we can teach other people some things there, then all the better. And it's interesting that we um, are, are agreement was based on consent mm. and consensus and somehow that is being interpreted in different ways and even like what did that mean when Brexit came mm. and was imposed where was that principle of consent exercised um, in Northern Ireland where the majority like Scotland voted against um, and so that's impacting on us but it's the economy and again we're watching Scotland and Scotland's annoyed that we're going to maybe have very, very annoyed and rightly <laughs> that we could do very well out of the agreement that has been made in Europe, yeah, yeah. being part of a single market and also being part of the British market. Well, you know, isn't that what we would really benefit from Absolutely. in terms of jobs and training? And if you want to keep young people away from being the rich pickings of the paramilitaries, that's exactly what we need to be doing. But it is, I don't grudge Northern Ireland that arrangement at all. I think it's a good thing, but when Scotland tried to when I had discussions with Theresa May about, look, we voted to stay in the European Union. If we can't do that, at least allow us to stay in the single market, not prepared to countenance it. And yet we're now in this position where what is great for Northern Ireland could be seriously detrimental to Scotland yeah, in correct. terms of investment. I had promised a question here, so we should take that one. Uh, I'm Renalini from India, and I am one of those voices that, Monica, you have uh, just spoken about being a young agent of change, attempting to 
uh, be in the system of peace build of peace building. Uh, one of the things that really will stay with me uh, from your story today is when your son asked that, will it be all peaceful from tomorrow? Um, Manipur in my country, India, is burning. It has come on to the international news with uh, violence on women when two women were paraded naked and gang raped. But um, extreme uh, fluctuations in human rights and keep peacekeeping, all of that. But um, it is really frustrating because Manipur as a state has been facing this kind of violence for more than over 500 years. It was Hindu Rajas who got into peace pacts with the local communities so many years back. The British got involved, the French got involved, the Indian uh, government got involved. Lately, as recent, uh, the last peace pact that the Manipur government got into with the insurgents was as recent as December 2022. And it has again been taken back in 23 after mm. Manipur began to burn yet again. Peacekeeping is very fervently becoming frustrating. Mm. I would like your thoughts on mm. that for young leaders like us. Well, in the book, that's exactly what I say. Don't ever let despair yeah. replace your hope. Uh, I end the book by saying I'm one of the long flight birds. I've been at this for 50 years. Uh, and I honestly can tell you I'm working as hard today to keep that peace embedded as I did the day I signed it. And anyway, a peace agreement is a piece of paper. It is up to you and me and the others to make it work. Um, and it is terrible sad that it took tragedy like that for the world then to pay attention to something that had been going on for mm -hmm. so long. Uh, but now the world is paying attention. Um, and I learned also that you do need to have champions for you. Um, and I need to stand in solidarity with you, hence the reason why Beyond Borders brings yeah. you and us together. Um, but also, the champions I'm talking about were South Africa, it was the United States, and it was also uh, European Union. And you probably need, and where is that now in the world, you know, in terms of having, we were, we were fortunate in having good champions internationally. I've learned, and on my commission for disbanding paramilitaries, we always insist now on having an independent international person on our commissions. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, when you're so close to it, I say it's the politics of the belly button and you need to look up and then look from the balcony at what's happening. And that's why it's good to have both the international and the nationals working on the resolution of conflict together. In the end, it's us, the people who live here, who will take ownership of it. Yeah. But it's really important that we give you some international solidarity, especially when you're here, to recharge your batteries uh, and go back home and... and continue to believe that you can be one of those long flight birds. And I mean that in the nicest sense, because women are too often called birds. Um, very, very wise words. Look, I could sit here for hours talking to Monica. I'm sure you could sit here listening. I've been flashed a sign up the back there saying, finish. <laughs> I trust it just means this session, but you never know in Scotland. Um, <laughs> I, so I'm sorry, we've uh, run out of time and I'm not going to be able to take any more questions from the audience. Um, Monica, this has been a privilege. Um, you're an inspiration. You are uh, both clever and wise. And I think your experience is not just incredibly important in Northern Ireland. I think it's got a lot to teach uh, us here in Scotland and people across the world. So it's been a huge privilege to speak to you. I'm sure it's been a privilege for everybody here to, to listen to you today. Uh, give, before I 
ask you to give her a round of applause. Can I remind you that her books are available to buy in the bookshop and she will be signing copies of uh, her book. It is really worth reading. It's a fantastic read, extraordinary book, chronicling an extraordinary life. So please give a massive round of applause. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, the privilege is all mine.